You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. The coming of Zion's king. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. And the second reading is from Luke, um, chapter 19, beginning at verse 24, the triumphal entry. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. And now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Chapter 19. I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, uh, either anyone in the room or if you're watching online, when I say that it's, um, it's never a good thing if you live in a town that is the gateway to anywhere. You know these towns, they'll have a sign out as you enter them, gateway to X. I, I went through a few of them a couple of years ago when my wife was very generous and let me go away for a week camping in the, the high country, in the Victorian Alps, my favourite place in the country and you will pass through several towns on the way up there that are the gateway to 
the Victorian Alps or the gateway to the high country. And basically what the, those signs are saying is that we have nothing to offer you as a town, uh, but we are close to the place that you think is cool. And so by association, we, we're cool too. Right? Sometimes I think that this is how we think about Palm Sunday. It's like the gateway to Easter. Um, there's nothing really in it for us, but it's the beginning of Holy Week, and so we have to pass through it and might stop and, I don't know, buy a coffee at the service station on the way through. That's not actually what, good, uh, not actually what Palm Sunday is at all. Palm Sunday is vital, absolutely vital for us to understand if we're going to get anything that happens on Thursday night or Friday morning or Sunday morning. It's absolutely vital for us. And that's why it marks the beginning of Holy Week. And I think one of the, the great gifts that was given to me being here yesterday for the family day was um, just the fact, and this is a fact, applied to any, anything that you know about Christianity, about God, the, the, um, the opportunity to engage with little ones and understand what all this means from their perspective is so helpful, so helpful. Um, lest you think that you're kind of um, patronizing Holy Week by explaining it to kids, you need to know, no, actually that's where the good stuff is. That's where the real meat is. I said it before, the deep end of the theological pool, if you wanna jump in there, that's where you'll find Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's where you find all the great anthems and uh, lessons that we want our children to know and understanding it from their perspective gives us greater understanding ourselves. So that's kind of how I want to approach this Palm Sunday. Simply taking the account from Luke's perspective, working through it a couple of verses at a time and seeing how it paves the way for us into the rest of Holy Week. So, let's start at verse 28. Luke says, When he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. One verse, packed with a lot of meaning. So, when he, says he, when he said these things, um, he's continuing the narrative. Jesus has just been in Jericho teaching, and he's just taught the, the parable of the ten miners, if you haven't uh, read through that before, then take the opportunity later on today. Um, but the important part of that first verse is not the first, but the second part where he says he went on up to Jerusalem. That is the trigger. That is the trigger verse for all of the most important stuff that Luke describes in his gospel account. This final week of Jesus' life that Luke really zooms in on and gives us a visceral view of this is the trigger for it. Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus starts the journey towards Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem that he will fulfill the purpose of his incarnation, that is, his crucifixion and resurrection. So Jesus in Jericho, at the lowest point on the face of the earth, I'm pretty sure, way, way, way low down below uh, sea level, starts to make this epic hike. You don't, you don't kind of get the sense of it in the text, but this is an epic hike uh, up, 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 up to the top of the mountain 
where Jerusalem is. And so I'm told that if you do this hike, first of all, take a lot of water. It's always hot. It's always dry. This is a, a barren landscape that you're walking through. And uh, what you're rewarded with, apart from the, the, the sort of transporting experience of being in the Holy Land, being in the city of Jerusalem, is that you're also greeted by this sort of refreshed landscape, an irrigated landscape. You can move from brown to green. And so this is where the way that Jesus is going. Apparently halfway through the journey, you make it to sea level. So that's how low down Jericho is. And this is where he begins and where he finishes up in this passage is in Jerusalem, there to die, there to die. He knows that with every step he takes up that, that, that journey uphill, every step of ascent is a step towards the cross. He knows this. So can, can you just imagine starting out that journey knowing that the destination is death? Some of you guys don't want to wake up in the morning because you've got a hard week of work ahead of you. Imagine Jesus. He doesn't have a hard week of work ahead of him. He's got the final week of his life ahead of him, climaxing in an excruciating, quite literally excruciating death. This is a death march. And we pick up the narrative as he takes the first step of it. In Mark's Gospel, he records Jesus giving very definite, um, very graphic narrat- uh, uh, explanation to his disciples of where he is going and what it means. So in Mark chapter 10, he says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Same, same thing. Up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were, were afraid. And so taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, that's his favourite title for himself, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three, and he will rise after three days. He knows exactly what this journey is all about. He knows that it's a death march. And with every step, he knows he's, it, every step is taking him closer to that final destination. Now, as his, his followers and him and maybe a, a bunch of people who have sort of been gathered around him, maybe just checking him out, unsure about who he is and whether he is, in fact, what the rumours say he is, the, the promised Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, those who have been attached to him, those who could be bothered walking all the way up to Jerusalem, they now come to within a, you know, a few k's of their destination. And we pick it up at verse 29 through to 30. It says, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you why you untying it, say this, the Lord needs it. 
So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. This is a weird part of the story. You could be forgiven if you just skipped over this and got to the rest, because this is a strange little episode. The thing is, though, all four Gospels record this episode, which is rare. Normally you get Matthew, Mark and Luke kind of on the same train and then John's off. He's more of an artist. He's, more, he's kind of more, um, he's more esoteric. Here, here you have an, an incident that seems like kind of inconsequential recorded by all four gospel writers. And the reason they all record it is because it's absolutely filled with symbolic meaning, with profundity and it's stuff that we don't get because we're not first century Jews but those who saw it would have got it and Jesus has obviously very clearly orchestrated all of this to happen in this way that said it is kind of a little bit of a strange story like what came to my mind uh, being an 80s kid was like is this like the first recorded example of a Jedi mind trick it's like a first-century Jedi mind trick. They're, t- they're stealing someone's donkey. They say, what's going on? And they just say, you want to give us the donkey? And it happens. Scholars will, um, will, as scholars do, discuss all kinds of reasons for this happening the way that it did. Some believe that Jesus pre orchestrated, pre-arranged it very specifically for the purpose that we're going to see kind of comes to pass. Others will um, tell us about, apparently there was kind of like a, an understanding in first, in first century ancient Near East, um, including the, this area of Jerusalem called Angaria, which is like if a, an official or a rabbi needs something, needs your donkey, needs your house, whatever, they can, they can, they can have it. Um, it's, like, it's like in the movies, the cop shows the badge to the guy on the motorbike and jumps on and, and rides off after the, the bad guy. It's that kind of thing. Uh, it was in this understanding that if someone is important enough, they can take your stuff um, on the understanding that they will bring it back at some point in good shape, you know, no dents in the donkey. And so maybe that's what's going on. Some people just say, well, he's God, so... He does whatever he, whatever he wants, which is always an unsatisfying answer to me. Yes, Jesus is fully God, fully man, but I think we probably miss some of the nuance of what's going on if we always just say, well, he was God, so... Whatever the case, why he does this is much more important than how he does it. Why he does it is the key. And why he does it is because, as I say, it is chock full of very profound symbolism. That's why all four Gospels record it. Jesus riding on the foal of a donkey, the colt of a donkey, riding into Jerusalem by the path that he has taken is full of symbolism. And what it says to everybody who's watching, maybe not the Romans, but definitely to all of the Hebrews, what it says is, this is the king. This is the Messiah. He's come. Every single person, as they saw this happen, would have thought of 
Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 to 10, which I know you guys know off by heart, but let me just remind you what it says. It says from the Old Testament, speaking of the coming Messiah, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. This is a promise from God way ahead of time about what the king will look like when he comes. Now all of Jerusalem, every Jew, every Hebrew man, woman and child at this point in time is on the edge of their seats waiting for the Messiah to come. The Romans have come, oppressed them. They're under the thumb of this Gentile pagan nation. They are waiting on the edge of their seats, praying, fasting, begging for God to send the king. And so when they see this, they get it. They get it. And Jesus has planned it to make a very explicit statement. Up until now, he's been very self-effacive. He's been, been like, well, you know, it's... If someone says, oh, you might be the Messiah, you just healed me from paralysis. He's like, just keep it, keep it on the DL for now. He doesn't want to trigger anything ahead of time. In John's Gospel, he keeps saying, my, my time has not yet come. So now the time has come. That trigger as he steps, the, that first step from, Jeru from Jericho to Jerusalem He's sort of punctuated in capital letters as he sits on this donkey and rides in by this road to the, the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem. It's unmissable. And the reason that he has put it together this way, in, with, with this kind of visual impact, is because this would do more than any of these words I'm saying to you could ever do for the people in Jerusalem at that time. This is why N.T. Wright, in, in one of his commentaries, says his riding, Jesus riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives, across Kidron and up to the Temple Mount, spoke more powerfully than words could ever do have done of a royal claim. He is claiming the throne. He is claiming his crown. We know that crown is going to be a crown of thorns. The people in Jerusalem don't know that. The people in Jerusalem expect him to come and tear the Romans apart. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not why he came. He didn't come to kill, but to be killed. To give himself as a ransom for many. Now this scene that he has set up, like a, a director of a film, set this scene, put characters in place. The theological backdrop is clear, meticulously arranged. This scene plays out just exactly how he wants it to, verse 35 to 38. Then they brought it, they brought the donkey to Jesus, 
and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Why? Because this is what you do for a king. You can read this through the Old Testament. This is what you do for a king. We like to do purple carpet. Here they do clothes, cloaks. They were spreading their clothes on the ground. Other gospel writers will talk about the palm branches that lend their name to this Palm Sunday. Luke's not so big into palms. Who knows why? He's into the clothing. So, clothes on the ground, palm branches. Now he came near to the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. They're putting it all together. Teaching with authority, miracles, donkey riding into Jerusalem. All they can do is like, praise God. Blessed is the king who finally, finally comes in the name of the Lord, quoting the Psalms. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, I just want to take a little excursion with you out of the immediate context of this text because I think we're invited now by Luke. If I've read it right, I think we're invited just with the whole Bible in front of us just to to pan back, pan the camera back, zoom out, and to see the contrast between Jesus' first coming and his second coming see the contrast from his coming into Jerusalem on a donkey to the way he rides in in that time which is yet to come. So here in this instance, in Holy Week, on Palm Sunday, you have Jesus humble, lowly, riding a young donkey. Israel expected this conquering king He expected the the Messiah just to come in brandishing a sword and doing justice, cutting down the Romans. You've got your legions, we've got the Messiah, and he wins. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. They were desperate to see it. And yet, the way he rides in is not on a horse, but a donkey. Not in military might, but humble, lowly. He comes in peace. That's what this picture tells everyone. This is the king, but he's coming in peace. Remember what Zechariah said. Now, when we pan forward, fast forward, some way into the future, either tomorrow morning or in 10,000 years, we don't know when, but when Jesus comes again in his second coming, he won't be on a donkey, but on a horse. He won't be here to make peace, but to make war. It's very important that we get this if we're going to understand the whole story. So in Revelation chapter 19, this is what we're told. John sees this vision. I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame. And many crowns were on his head. He had, a name written that no, uh, he had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. 
and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with a rod of iron, an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. See the difference? Both descriptions of Jesus, both descriptions of Jesus coming to his people. One, a description of a humble, lowly sacrifice, riding a beast of burden, coming in peace. The other one, a warrior on a white horse, come to make war. To make war on injustice and sin and evil and everything that's wrong with the world. So we need to get this. This Holy Week is an invitation to us. It's an invitation to come to Jesus who is here to make peace with us. He will make peace by sacrificing himself. The blood will be his blood. He extends his nail-pierced hands in peace to us. But it won't always be the case. Now is the time to make peace with God. Now is the time to be reconciled to God. Come to Jesus when his arms are open wide in love and redemption. Don't wait for when he comes on a horse brandishing a sword. Now I know that the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. Swords coming out of mouths. But I don't think the meaning of that is unclear to us. Now is the time. Now is the time to be reconciled to God. Throw yourself on his mercy. He is lowly, humble. He rides in peace. For now. And so his disciples say, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Don't be like those proud religious rulers of that day. Don't be like them who saw Jesus' humility, saw his willingness to sacrifice himself, saw him embodying the free love of God for all people and chose to reject him, chose to condemn him. Don't be like them. You can be. Please don't be. Their response to seeing this graphic illustration of God's goodness and mercy and love, the fulfillment of his promises. Remember what the scripture says, all of God's promises have their yes in Jesus. Their response to seeing this in front of them is to say, verse 39, some of the Pharisees from the crowds told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
They're saying you're the king. They're saying you're the Messiah. They're saying you are God with us. Rebuke them. Point out their blasphemy. Utter rejection of all that they're seeing. And he says in response, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And I just love that with all of my heart. I just I love that. This is one of the reasons I love Jesus. All of the most important stuff is true. All the best reasons for loving him is why I love him. Holy Week is why I love him. But I also just a part of me loves him because of that. I love the sass. My daughter is very sassy, and I can never be that angry about it because she's a bit like Jesus when she's like that. I don't know. I don't know how you'd respond to this. The Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, the people for whom you know they pass through and everyone sort of bows their heads in deference, they say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. It's not a recommendation. It's a command. Rebuke them. How do you respond to that? I would be like, oh, yeah, okay. Or, or like at the best, maybe like, you rebuke your disciples. Like something really weak and, and pathetic. Or I would get home later that night and think, oh, I should have said this to those guys. Jesus, in the moment, just like a, like a what's that called in the Westerns? Gunslinger. He does this all the time. I tell you, I just see him kind of, I know he comes in peace on a donkey, he's humble and lowly, but I just see a little bit of swagger as he says, I tell you, <laughs> if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Now, I was talking about this with my kids yesterday as we read this passage together, and they were like, really? And my immediate response as a kind of post-enlightenment Western civilized human being, you know, enlightened, was to say, well, you know, he's being, this is called uh, exaggeration, hyperbole. They're like, what the heck is, why, why did you just make up that word? I was like, no, hyperbole, it's an actual word. It's like, you know, it's, he's exaggerating. He's like, you know, I can't shut them up. This, what they're saying is so important that it has to be said. But then I was thinking about it this morning, and I don't know. Maybe he's just like spitting facts. Maybe if they shut up, the stones really do cry out. It wouldn't surprise me. This is the kind of magic that Jesus has. These are the kind of miracles that he performs. All of creation knows who Jesus is, even if the Pharisees don't. Or they wish they didn't. All of creation knows. All of creation, remember Romans 8, all of creation is just groaning in eager anticipation of Jesus' second coming. So would they not have recognised the first? I think they probably did. The stones, the stars, the sea. Remember Isaiah's description of, of Jesus' second coming? This is what he, sa he, he says in Isaiah 55. He says, you will go out in joy, be led forth in peace. You, you guys sing this in the 80s in church? I did. The mountains and the hills will birth into song before you and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Why? Because the creation knows its creator. 
And when that creation comes to fulfillment, final redemption and restoration, it's going to have a party. So I don't know. I'm leaving the door open to the possibility that if the disciples shut up, the stones start crying out. Palm Sunday is not the gateway to Easter. This is profound truth. This is an absolutely imperative part of the story. It's a part of the story that links together the thread of old covenant into new. Shows us the fulfillment of all of God's promises in his promised Messiah. The symbolism is rich and we're meant to feast on it. How are you going to respond this holy week? If all of this is true, and I truly believe it is, then this week is the most important week in the history of the universe. And remembering this week, this week is the most important thing you can do. If this is fairy tales and it's stones and talking and guys with swords in their mouths, if it's all kind of a nice story to tell year after year, please don't bother with it. There's a Grand Prix on today. Even that's more interesting than this. If it's not true. If it's true, it's the fulfilment of all the most important stuff that's ever occurred in the history of the universe. So let me along with Jesus, extend to you an invitation to Holy Week. This Thursday night we're going to gather here at 8pm. I know that's a little difficult if you've got young kids like I do. Maybe it's just one of those times that you let them stay up a little later. We're going to gather in here in the dark. It's going to be a bunch of candles lit. We're going to reflect on that last night the final night of Jesus' earthly ministry. Call it Maundy Thursday. It's the night he gave his disciples a new commandment that they should love one another as he had loved them. It's the night where the king of kings puts his crown aside and washes the feet of his disciples. It's the night he shares with them the Last Supper. It's a profound night, a night of confrontation, a night of betrayal, a night in which Jesus enters a garden sweating blood under the strain of being the lamb that was slain. That's Thursday night. Friday morning at 10 o'clock, we're going to gather on Good Friday. My son said yesterday morning, shouldn't we call it Bad Friday? It's a fair question. It is a bad Friday. It's the baddest thing that's ever happened. The most evil, sinister thing that's ever happened. The God who spoke into existence the universes is nailed to a wooden cross and killed for the sake of 
is enemies. It's terrible and it's good. I want to encourage you to join us then, 10 o'clock on Friday, and then please, please come back. Come back for the best day of the year. Some of us get all caught up in Christmas. It's got nothing. It's got nothing on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. It's the day we remember that all of God's promises have their yes in Jesus because death could not hold him down. He is risen. And so, because he is risen, yet we will be as well. Encourage you, please come. Invest that time over the coming week, Holy Week. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word to us. You are so faithful to speak to us. I praise you and thank you for all of your promises laid out over thousands of years throughout the old covenant, all of these signposts pointing towards the coming Messiah. And I thank you for this scene that we've seen this morning, this scene of your son fulfilling all of those promises. He is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And now as we wait for him to return, riding that white horse, I ask that you would please call us by your effective Holy Spirit, that you would effectually call us to repentance, to faith, to trust in our Lord Jesus. Please do the work of reconciliation and forgiveness among us. Make this church a lighthouse of redemption until that day when you come again. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you're going to do in the coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.